there is an innate and professional need by so many of us to shine the light in dark corners, to reveal the truth, expose the bad guys, tell the stories and Caro, there will always be a community out there who want to hear those stories or watch them or read them. I love the age. The age masthead is something that I pray fervently remains a major part of Melbourne life until the day I die. I remember clearly standing on the stage and saying, in amongst that, all that pink, and saying, if you've had breast cancer, put your arms in the air. And I can remember the sigh from people going, oh, I think you're one of the people who owe the Australian oh, public an apology. I don't know that I'm going to take a leaf out of Nikki's book. I don't know anybody in apology. Killing Eve on the ABC is one of the most fabulous dramas. It is fantastic. It spies, it's psychological... Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. It's that time of the week again, everybody. Welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm Caroline Wilson. It's episode 48. I'm here with my very good friend and bookseller who is holding in her hot little hand a hot new edition of a certain cookbook, which I'm really excited about. Corey Perkin, welcome. Thank you, Caro. I saw your little eyes light up there. We'll have to wait till we get to BSF for that one. We have a lot of things to talk about. Um, Angela Williamson, the Cricket Australia, former Cricket Australia employee among them. Um, I don't have that many apologies this week. I'm not apologising again for being hypocritical about my stand over Tom Lynch, the Gold Coast player who might well end up at Collingwood, Hawthorne or Richmond. Um, I want to just say thank you to Linda Danvers, our old friend, who's seen back to Burgundy and over a glass of red, totally enjoyed it, or as much as a glass of red. And thanks to Jan Blacker, who, after my rather disappointing Swedish film experience, says that we should go and see Corrie Becoming Astrid, um, a film, a gem of a movie about the early life of Astrid Lindgren. But among other things, we have a special guest this week, Corrie. Her I name. love it when we have a guest, Caro. The reason we're doing this is because, once again, the field of women is returning to the MCG. It's arriving on August the 12th. Melbourne plays Sydney in what is shaping up as a massive game for many reasons, but not least because we're going to be raising awareness again for the... Two, two words to you, Caro. Pink poncho. <laughs> I've still got my I've first still one. got mine. We went together. Lynn Swinburne AM is the founder of the Breast Cancer Network Australia, which is what we are raising awareness for. Um, I think she founded it in 1996. Lynn was diagnosed in 1993 with breast cancer. She's also the chair of the Royal Women's Hospital and the first woman president of Royal Melbourne Golf Club. Lynn, how exciting to finally get you on the show. Yay! Welcome. Look, we're cursing. Oh, thanks, How many presidents of royal things can one be in one's life? Well, I know. Royal family? I'm working. I know. I'm working on Looking that. Looking very tartan today, Liv. Oh, I guess you're off to a game of golf <laughs> after this. It's a weird look, the tartan, Lynn, isn't it? Lynn, one question, no, which not. has completely nothing yes. to do with breast cancer at all, but I've always had this thing about golf fashion. I've been mm. banging on about it for mm. years. The men look like clowns mm. and the women look like men. Not that you do today. <laughs> I actually what, think this might be a man's design, jumper, <laughs> Why can't they design, you know, smart clothing I for know. women? No. Well, I think there's some Swedish designers and stuff that have gorgeous clothes. 
but they're all size six and eight. And, you know, that would barely fit one leg of me. I love golf shoes. So, those, those lovely sort of broguish sort of yeah. things you all wear. I think they're fabulous. Yeah, I'll, I'll pay like you a hundred bucks if you wear one out to a cocktail party well, one Well, I don't have the legs, but my daughter wears them and they look great. Anyway. Yeah. Sorry, get, slightly off topic there. Getting Lynn. back to the field of women. Um, look, it's, it's Sunday, August the 12th, as I just said. This is going to be a really big game, Lynn, because Melbourne mm. need to win. Sydney mm. are probably going to need to win to keep their finals hopes alive. I want to take you back, though, to the first field of women Mm. and talk to you about how on earth you came up with this extraordinary idea of getting how many women and men into the middle of the MCG, was it? I think it was 12 or it might have been even 14,000. See, um, when we started BCNA back in 1998 in Canberra, we planted 10,000 pink silhouettes on the grounds in front of um, Parliament House. Who came up with that logo? Well, actually, I had been working with a couple of young students from Swinburne Tech in those days from their design school. Brilliant. It it is brilliant, Brilliant. isn't it? Because it's, it's no one but everyone. Do you know what I mean? And actually, when you put all those little pink silhouettes together side by side, they all hold hands. It's divine, they're which is really... And they're, and they're quite joyful for, they us, are. for what can be an incredibly distressing they are. journey, yeah. to use yeah. that word. And we wanted to say to Australia when we were first forming, look at the impact of this disease on the country. Look at how many women are affected. So we planted 10,000 pink ones for the number diagnosed that year in 98 and 2,500 white ones for the number of women who would die. And it was incredibly powerful. We moved that vision around the country over the years. And then it started to feel a bit like we've lost the impact here a bit. So then I thought, well, why don't we bring it to life and have real people stand in place of those silhouettes? And so that was the basis. And then where would we have it? Well, where better than on that hallowed turf? And again, it takes people's attention because they're not expecting something like that on the footy field. It was a you were a thorn in the side of the AFL, though, weren't you? Because it was sheer triumph of persistence over adversity, really, that you got it over the line. And partly because breast cancer had so impacted on the AFL organisation as a yeah. whole. Yeah, it, uh, people couldn't sort of get the concept. They'd say. They're going to stand in pink ponchos and then what are they going to do? You know, they couldn't sort of get the idea. And it wasn't just the AFL, but it was all the organisations basically whom I needed on board, like the Melbourne Footy Club, the Melbourne Cricket Club, the um, the MCG Trust, the City of Melbourne, like there were a whole lot of players. Melbourne Footy Club, to their credit, got it immediately and said, yep, We'll be in there. We want to do this. But the MCC took a lot of work. Um, And it was really Jill Lindsay from the AFL in those days, the late Jill Lindsay, who at one meeting said, now listen, boys, all you're saying is no. No to everything she says. (laughs) You know, what about a bit of yes? And she actually turned the corner for us. Um, So Jill is in fact... The, the true first lady of football. She's the yeah. first and only woman to be a life member of the AFL. Yeah. Jill also died of cancer some, some years later. But at the time, Corrie, Andrew Dimitriou, 
Ben yeah. Buckley and Ian Anderson, the CFO of the AFL, had all lost their wives to cancer, mm. which was to breast cancer, to breast cancer, and. Mm. And I think the the thing about BCNA, I mean, I always have to explain this to people because it's not about finding a cure so much for breast cancer. It's about holding the hand of people who are diagnosed because Mm. when you were diagnosed, there was no one Mm. for you to turn to really, Mm. was it? No, I think it's about two things. It's about that support and never having to feel alone and women sharing information with each other in the way that we want to and we have historically not necessarily medical facts, but, you know, our experiences. This is the way I did it or this worked for me or that kind of thing. So I think that's really important. But the other thing is that Breast Cancer Network Australia was the voice for those people, influencing the way that treatment was offered, influencing the way that doctors spoke to women, influencing the kind of research that was going to be done that we felt had to be done to help, you know, raise the issues that were actually affecting the women. So a lot of women in those days used to have lymphedema, which is a um, which is a condition of your arm when they take out the lymph nodes in your armpit and your arm swells and causes problems. I mean, I've got this 25 years later and have to have a massage every month. I'm glad I'm alive, but, you know, I'd rather not have to do that. Um, but no one was doing any research. So the women said, this is important to us. Find out how many women are affected. Find out how we can improve it. And so the women actually drove change in that area. What about wigs? What about wigs? Well, I, I just wonder, I mean, that's always a thing that a lot of friends who, my friends who've been diagnosed say, it is just an absolute nightmare what happens to your hair. Mm. And they had no idea. And about, eyebrows and eyelashes. Yeah. And, I I I do, and, and that's, that's something a couple of people have said, BCNA mm. have been fantastic well, the in guiding thing, them. Yeah. Again, the thing is the medical world, not so much now because they're way better in this sphere anyway, but they used to think, why would women even worry about that? Like, this is life and death. Why are they worrying about losing their hair or their eyelashes? But you and I all know, and the readers will all, listeners will all know, that things like that are really, really important. You don't want to look like one of those bald sort of victims. You actually want to feel good about yourself. And retain your femininity. Correct. And you're already having your boobs chopped off and you're already having all this other treatment. So at least if you can look okay, um, that helps. So, yeah, research is actually being done. They're trying these cold caps to help women maybe retain their hair through chemo. But it's that's a perfect example of what's important to women. Lynn, um, a couple of uh, observations on this. Um, someone close to all of us, uh, Judy Costello, when she was diagnosed with her first breast cancer, um, we were kindergarten mothers at school together. And oh. so she was under 40 and um, was in shock. And we were all shocked and we didn't know what this meant. We all thought this doesn't happen to young people who are 35. Mm. So there was just no knowledge whatsoever. Mm. Fast forward to, I think, um, about four years ago, I had a little lump and had to go and have a biopsy and ended up having an operation. It was all okay. But the process of going in and out and to surgeons and having biopsies and all that kind of bizzo, everywhere I went, there was Breast Cancer Network Australia paraphernalia up to the gazoo. And every waiting room I was in, I just went, hallelujah, Lynn Swinburne. Oh. In that time, so what's that, a sort of a 18, 20-year period, 
the the, knowledge, the lack of knowledge that Jude had, even though she was um, in the medical profession herself, mm. she was a theatre nurse, to what had what was then available to the average bear me going in was just all credit to you. Mm. All credit to you. Well, not and all the, credit and, to me, though, really. Well, the gang. The I mean, gang. it's a nice line and I love it, but... Uh, yeah, there were a lot of people working on this, a lot of women around the country, a lot of women who themselves were very sick and even dying felt that this was important enough to speak out and be strong about. Um, so it has really been a team effort. And I think to their credit, the medicos have really lifted their games as well. You know, at the start, we were like, come on, guys, look us in the eye, say our name, think about the impact that this has on our lives. She's not going to get through breast cancer totally crushed and defeated by the by the experience. So you had this massive task of raising money so you could then raise awareness. In other words, have all your paraphernalia printed, um, mm. have have a staff, you know, have an mm. organisation, mm. pay all the bills mm. and, and get the word out there. And this, this field of women was an extraordinary thing. Caro and I both went along with all of our new best friends. Remember we sat with the whole group because we were all assigned – I keep thinking of the logistics, Lynn. Mm. Okay, so who has had the CAD program on their computer to design the shape of a woman? And we're taking this shape out to the MCG. We're all allocated. Do you remember, Caro, certain rows, certain oh, spots? Oh, yes. It was much the f- better done that time than the time we went up to mm, Sydney. Sydney and did was it. a nightmare, wasn't it? It was. It oh, was at the, the old Olympic Stadium at Homebush. And yeah. then the one back here at night was a fabulous event too. Um, and mm. the first year of Gillan McLaughlin's uh, CEO-ship of the AFL. But, the, but just the, the volunteer, the volunteers involved to bring us all out and to put us in the shape of a massive pink woman, mm. the joy on the field, standing mm. next to people who's, you know, to, to men whose wives had died, mm. to women who, you know, with their little hats on because they had no hair because they were in the middle of chemo and they had their little, you know, and the joy in their faces that everybody was engaged what an amazing collective moment that was. You must, was. you must have felt very proud. Well, I did. I mean, I didn't sleep I think for you about, needed a stiff drink, oh, actually. God, yeah. <laughs> I didn't sleep for, I can't tell you how long before it, because, you know, it's all very well to have this vision in your head, but actually, is it ever going to work for all the reasons you've talked about? Uh, but I remember clearly standing on the stage and saying, in amongst that, all that pink and saying, if you've had breast cancer, put your arms in the air. And I can remember the sigh from people going, oh, because people said to me afterwards, I was standing next to this gorgeous young woman who had a baby on her shoulders and she put her arms in the air. And she said, uh, this woman said, I said to her, not you. Hmm. And she said, yes, and why wouldn't it be? Mm. And there was this amazing moment there I think the feeling of being together, the feeling of um, community kind of connection, the sense of that sisterhood thing, and I include the blokes that come to that too because they're super supportive. In the first one they wore navy blue ponchos. Yes, they're doing that again. Yeah, they do that each time as an acknowledgement that there are around 150 men who are diagnosed. Each year. We should mention a couple of logistics. Mention again that it's Sunday, August the 12th. Yeah. Children can go for free, but yes. they need to register. They do. And everyone they have needs to go to with register. an adult. Yeah. So the adults register online at bcna.org.au. If you just stick Breast Cancer Network Australia or BCNA in your search engine, you'll find it. 
you register, it costs $59 and you get a ticket to the footy and you get this experience on the ground and you get a whole lot of goodies in your goodie bag and your backpack. And you you get the poncho. You get that amazing poncho that kind of pongs usually, doesn't it? (laughs) It did after being in my dress-ups cupboard for 10 years. I know. I know. I've got a few in the boot of my car just in case. Imagine running around in one of (laughs) Or when you're playing golf and say, hang on, girls, I've just got to put my wet weather (laughs) gear on. Yeah, I'll just cover the tartan in the pink plastic. I'm, I'm not no, I'm not normally into naming sponsors in any organisation, but your partnerships with Burley, I think Baker's Delight, yeah. uh, Red Energy, Suzanne, yeah. has been an unbelievable yeah. supporter of the BCNA. Yeah. You've you've developed partnerships unlike many other organisations yeah. that have been loyal to you for so long, Lynn. Well, I think Corrie, when you were saying before about paying the bills, Baker's Delight took me into their office. They paid all our bills. We didn't have a computer, a phone, a chair, nothing. And we grew so much that we kind of pushed them out of their office and they had to take another floor for themselves. I should also mention you've got, although sadly you're no longer CEO of BCNA, Kirsten Pilati, your yes. late, she is an absolute dynamo. She is. Is and she the new Lynn? Is she the new she CEO? Is. Yeah. She is. She's been involved with BCNA for a long time. Yes, she, she totally is. gets it. She's a smart, whip smart well, she's younger than me anyway. And her partner, Craig Moore, actually runs 3AW football. So as a pair, they sort of rather hound my lives in many, yeah. in many, in so, many different but ways. But she has – she gets the women and the women get her. It's yep. so important, that heart in the organisation. So, Lynn, you stood down from um, BCNA a few years ago, a couple mm. of years ago, and um, – Everybody felt very sad, but I thought you did it with enormous dignity and all for the right reasons. It was time for the, the organisation to go the next level. Yeah. And now you've propped up as the head of Royal Women's Hospital with just as much passion as I can testify at the <laughs> engagement party you and I were at. And, and another thing, says Lynn, and you've got you and Caroline have got to come down and see what we're doing at the Royal Women's Hospital. But Carol and I had our babies at the Royal Women's Hospital. Yes, Women's we Hospital. Did. I had appendix out. I can't oh, tell no, you how many don't times. Don't worry, I'm... we haven't let you go yet. <laughs> I haven't. If you think you're off the hook. You're wrong. <laughs> I haven't. I've been in and out of that place so often, but I, you know, close to a lot of Melbourne women's and Melbourne families' hearts. What, um, what are the challenges, just really quickly, that are facing you in this new um, era of running a mm. public hospital? Well, it's funny because after all my years of batting on about, you know, the services have got to suit the women, and you know, the doctors have got to do this and so on, I've actually got to deliver myself now on the other side of the the fence. I think the challenges are continuing to provide really high-quality care at a time when money's very tight. You know, you've got to decide your priorities and so on. But at the Women's Hospital, we're totally committed to looking after women. I mean, we've got a very long history of looking after the most challenged and vulnerable women in our community. And so, you know, we run a drug and alcohol service for women. We're leaders in the domestic violence area and helping other hospitals with their support. So I like to think that we get the women. We understand, again, what's important to women. We view them in their social context, so not just as a, you know, an ovary or, a, or a, you know, having a baby, but it's the whole woman and what the whole woman's needs are. So I think that's our, you know, I mean, most hospitals say they're consumer-focused, um, 
but I can put my hand on my heart and say we totally are, and that's my commitment to the place. That's that's just such a – it's one of the great Australian institutions, the Royal Women's Hospital. Well, I don't know about you, Cara, but I remember when um, they said you have to go home with your first baby, you know, because I'd held on for another couple of extra days. I burst into tears and hugged all the nurses and said, I want you to come home with yeah. me. I still I remember the sandwiches that midwife bought me after Rose was born. I have never tasted it. It's still the best meal I have ever eaten, this little <laughs> and what about white bread ham sandwich. <laughs> and what about the first shower? Oh, like yes. stepping into that shower. But, but look, just to get sort of down and dirty, when I had my appendix out, of course, they don't let you – I mean, it was so much more difficult in those days. No, keyhole surgery, what was that? You know, mm. a keyhole was in a door, not in your tummy. Mm. And – so I was in hospital for a few days and they said, we're not letting you go home until you, you know, pass a movement. Oh, I knew this was going to come up. I knew it. <laughs> but having, an, having a nurse hold your hand as you're sitting on the toilet oh. and you're crying your eyes out. I mean, is there anything? And having a movement at the same <laughs> well, time. Try, well, trying, not trying to, but you couldn't. Oh, not but, holding oh, gosh, someone's hand. And just nurses holding your hands. That's oh. my memory of the Royal oh. Women's Hospital through thick and thin, holding your hands and you know, cheer yeah, up, well, pet, it's exactly, you'll be all right. It's exactly the same, we hope. I remember my beautiful obstetrician, Len Kleeman, who I think helped pioneer the, um, yes, the um, champion of the babies of heroin-addicted mm. or drug-addicted mothers mm. program. And it all involved um, putting the babies in sacks and holding them close to the, to the mm. nurses as a way of giving them, nurturing them in a way that they were unable to be nurtured by their mothers. I mean, that was weaning those babies off dangerously addictive drugs is one of the more heartbreaking sites. Anyway, look, before we let you go, Lynn, I just want to, I want to talk about Angela Williamson. Oh. Now, you've followed this story, Lynn, Corrie. I know you have. Um, you wanted to raise it on the show today. So Angela Williamson worked for Cricket Australia in Tasmania. She was a senior employee there. She tweeted in January um, – she tweeted in January about her disappointment about the fact that um, Tasmanians had to leave – Tasmania to go to the mainland to have abortions. Yeah, because they just closed, lack of funding, they just closed their last abortion clinic. He's been sacked by Cricket Australia, an endorsed employer of women, according to one of their proud um, mantras. He's been sacked for then following up with more very, very, very critical tweets of the Tasmanian government. I think the word gutless or cowardly or something like that was in the tweets. She has, she's been sacked, but she was being trolled, Lynn, by a senior, a senior Liberal staffer in Tasmania who screenshotted her first tweet back to Cricket Australia, who then spoke to the... Who is ta- now known as Australia's greatest dibber-dobber. Yeah, well, she's been sacked, but, um, well, they've been sacked, but, um, and, but so is Angela. And Angela has basically been sacked because of her comments about the Tasmanian government's failure to provide treatment for women wanting abortions in Tasmania. And her private medical details were passed on to Cricket Australia by the government. Lynn, have you... It's just totally unfathomable to me. We we do have to say she is fighting this in the law court, so there might be a happy outcome. Morris Blackburn have come on board. (laughs) Yeah. Well, uh, I I just can't believe any of it. I... I, I can't believe what Cricket Australia could have been thinking. I can understand an employer, you know, if she worked for the state government, I can see that they wouldn't be happy for her to be criticising her employer. But even they, you would hope, would bring her in and say, look, 
you know, can we work this out? This is our position, etc. Yes, I mean nothing to do with. She works for Cricket Australia. I can understand why you'd be worried about people who work for you putting certain things on social media. Yeah, but this has been badly handled from point A to point Z. And there is absolutely no doubt Cricket Australia are going to end up looking foolish about this, oh. and I'm sure she'll get a massive settlement, or she oh. will get a settlement. Oh, I, I would think so. Well, she apparently she wants her job back. She does. She says that. But it would be toxic to go back. Mm. Can you, can Leave you, it in the hands of Morris Blackburn, I would be saying. How on earth were her private medical details passed on to oh. her employer? Oh, well, you see, and this is what this is what the women of America are now fearing, Caro, with this whole, you know, stacking the Supreme Court full of right-wing Republican, mostly men, who are anti-abortion. This is what they're absolutely terrified of over there. Not only will you not be able to get an abortion, but if you try somewhere in a state that may still have it, it's just... every, all, your, all, all your details are going to be made public. And doesn't it feel like we're going way back, like way back into those terrible times when women sought abortions from backyard dodgy people, died of infections afterwards? If you can't manage to to get that happening properly, you know, t- really terrible things happen. We go back to the day when there's a stigma related to abortion. Thankfully, these days it's seen as an important and has to be considered medical procedure. But well, going if nothing back to else, where there's a stigma. If nothing else, Angela has highlighted something that I must say, mm. I, I realised there were issues, but I had absolutely no idea that it was impossible to get an abortion, an mm. abortion in Hobart or around Tasmania. That is an extraordinary fact that I think now everybody knows about. So at least she's highlighted that and hopefully there will be some sort of repatriation in that area. So Lynn, you've got a pretty um, busy, I mean, I know you're not the CEO anymore, but you've got a huge couple of weeks ahead. Well, I'm just very excited because I know how wonderful this event is. And initially I was pretty worried when they didn't get a night game. For the field of women. Did the AFL get anything right about the fixture this year? Another black mark. Well, no comment. (laughs) Um, But uh, now that I know what's going to happen on the day, there is something very special going to happen. Oh, that's exciting. actually will look brilliant. On the ground? On the ground. And uh, my lips are sealed. Uh, However, what I would say is it will be spectacular. It will be something we've never seen before in Australia. And it'll be pink probably. It'll be pink, but probably not with a capital P. <laughs> How? Oh, that's a good tip. How many women? <laughs> I was do just it? using my old investigative journalist skills there, just oh, dusting yes. it oh, off. You're a gun, yeah. Corrie. Yeah, you're amazing. How many men and women do you hope to get onto the MCT? Well, we want to get eighteen thousand, and that's a good point, Carolyn. That uh, Caroline, sorry, darling. Oh, Lynn. Um, that it's not just for women. So you know, we, we want to see the blokes there. Um, and, you know, it's an opportunity to come. If if you know someone who's been diagnosed, who's walked that walk, why not come with, you know, a group of friends or, or the family and be there with that person and stand with them and say, you know, we care, we're glad you're here, we're behind you, um, and make a day of it. So bring the kids. As you say, the kids come for nothing. Just make sure they're registered. This year they're doing a whole lot of stuff outside the ground from 11 o'clock with animal farms and God knows what else. Uh, so it really can be like a, a whole picnic day. Yeah, and, and you get to be part of the pink lady. You I can, know. You might be part of her little arm or you a might be. dress. Or yeah. If you don't have enough people, I suppose you just 
make a smaller pink lady, do you? I don't know. I think there's some more gaps <laughs> in the I'm fascinated. You can tell, lady. Lynn, I'm fascinated by yeah, the logistics. Yeah, yeah. I actually want to get into your, you know, yeah, into I'll, the workroom. I'll, <laughs> I'll fill you in. Uh, but I, I, I really, I mean, it's 18,000 because that's the number that are expected to be diagnosed this year. So it's a really big statement. I think the vision will be, again, seen around the world as it has in the past. And it's an opportunity to stand on that amazing ground and look up at the, you know, and I think there are less and less opportunities for you to go on the ground and that, that will happen even more in the future. So it's given, when you look at what the AFL has done in, with their partnership with Neil Danaher and, you know, Freeze mm. MND, uh, they've been a, a couple of big events where they have just, and obviously the Maddie Re- Revolt's vision, mm. you know, the, the Purple Game a few weeks ago, Richmond St Kilda, again, the Revolt, boys getting together and creating this great thing, what the Melbourne Footy Club have done Mm. with the inspiration of BCNA. And if you go along on Sunday, August 12, hang around long enough, Corrie, you're going to see probably the most exciting young player in the game in Clayton Oliver run out for the Ds and take them towards the finals. And you get to see Buddy Franklin as well, one of the most exciting older players in the game. So it's going to be a fabulous day. And you get the pink poncho. (laughs) A collector's item. (laughs) Lynn, have a, good, your golf? have a good game, Lynn. It's lovely Thank to you. have you on. The, you have Thanks to come back. Thanks for coming, Linny. Let's have a game of Thanks, golf soon. Don. Yeah, yeah, I've told let's you. Just, let's just rock roll Yesterday. Melbourne in our, in, our pink, in our pink ponchos. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> Thanks, girls, for having me. That was Lynn Swinburne. So, Corrie, the big announcement that took place very soon after we um, shut off our most previous episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger was the announcement of a merger between the Nine Network and Fairfax, um, some call it a merger. I would probably call it more like a takeover. Would you yeah. agree with that? Well, yeah, they're not using Fairfax's board. They're ditching the name, basically. They're keeping some board members, aren't they? Three well, board members? they haven't said that. Have they said yeah, that publicly? Yeah, they have, yep. Yeah, they're, they're, they're th- two or three board members are remaining from Fairfax. And wouldn't it be lovely, Cara, if one of them was a journalist? Because there is no one who has worked on or off camera or on newspapers in the journalism sector on the Channel 9 board. So wouldn't it be nice if, you know, one or two, are there any on the Fairfax board? Well, Greg Highwood, mm. the CEO, was a journalist. Yes, but he won't be going along in the new in the new um, formation, I wouldn't have thought. No, he he'll, won't. He'll be walking off with his nine million bucks. Is it six million or eight million or nine million? That Ronald McDonald we interviewed on Saturday on three. And most it's eight million with a with a package or something. I understand, but isn't it interesting over the years how many CEOs of Fairfax over the last twenty years have walked away with one million, two million, five million, seven million, ten million? Don't get me started. Look, there, there's been a small amount of hypocrisy over this, though, Corrie. And I, I have to be honest here. I don't. And I, I still work for Fairfax, no longer as a full-time employee, as a contributor to The Age. I love The Age. The Age masthead is something that I pray fervently remains a major part of Melbourne life until the day I die. Ditto the Sydney Morning Herald yeah, and the Financial that, Review. But I don't hold a huge amount of loyalty to Fairfax itself. And it was Ronald McDonald, who's been very negative about this merger takeover who did the deal originally with Fairfax it was Paul Keating back in the 80s who came out very strongly last week I mean that was an unbelievable attack where he said Channel 9 and the Nine Network have the morals of an alley cat and this is terrible for independent journalism it was Paul Keating who did the deal between Rupert Murdoch's organisation and the Herald and Weekly Times he allowed that merger to take place so 
all these people have not are not without sin themselves. No one's squeaky clean, but I having just, concentrated I, our media environment I just, to the point I just, where it now is. Sure. I, look, for me, the saddest day was in 1990 when young Warwick Fairfax, who had taken over the company three years earlier in a family buyout, um, put it put it as a publicly listed company, got the banks involved, people like Laurie Connell, um, all of those sort of sharks. And then realised three years later that not only was he ill-equipped, but he just didn't have the money and the backing. And we were in the middle of a recession at that stage, but the whole thing was a disaster and um, and that's how we ended up with Conrad Black running the company. But that, for me, was the saddest day of all. That's when I remember working in the newsroom then. And in fact, you were at the Sunday Age as well. The terror. The I remember terror. being in the lift with Conrad Black the, the time he came into the office. And I was desperate Swag to, it in. Well, I was desperate to um, learn more about his wife, who was that gorgeous former Canadian journo who he'd hooked up with. Who well, they ended up getting into a lot of trouble, and she was a big spender. I just want to say, I just want to say, on, say on sorry the, to digress. I just want to say on the Ranald thing, <clears throat> it's been very easy to bag over the years. Ranald McDonald's decision in 1983 to sell uh, the remaining David Syme shares and shareholders in David Syme and Companies um, to Fairfax. The problem was actually it started about 20 years, 30 years earlier than that in the 50s when his grandfather, Oswald Syme, actually sold um, shares to Fairfax and decided that, that the company needed more money. He was a visionary in his own way with newspapers, Oswald, but he decided that uh, the company needed more money behind it. And so they sold, sold a parcel to Fairfax. And for 30 years, 40 years, you know, there was a there was a, a kind of a nice gentleman's um, – relationship. On the night my father died in 1975, that day he was actually supposed to be in Sydney where he was going to be offered the job of the CEO of Fairfax. He and Ranald had discussed this and my father felt that even though he didn't want to leave the age, he'd been the editor for 10 years, it was time to do the next step. And this was a great way of keeping the synergy between the two papers and helping Fairfax continue on its way as a great newspaper house. That, of course, didn't happen and lots of things happened since. And the, as I said, one turning point was certainly Ranald making the decision and it was a tough decision for him to make and one that killed him. You know, it was really hard, but it was in the best interests of all the shareholders that they do this deal. And he thought he was passing over with everybody surrounding trying to buy uh, David Simon Co. He thought he was doing the right thing by selling it to Fairfax. And certainly things were okay and stable for those first few years. Warwick Fairfax absolutely, you know, just trashed the place. And the other turning point, I think, was Fred Hilmer's tenorship as CEO of Fairfax. He had no idea about newspapers. He, let, he, he dismissed every opportunity that the internet then presented in the early 2000s. He appointed, we might say, um, he made some curious appointments and had some curious advisors and some really bloody curious ideas about how to run a newspaper organisation. And he lost opportunities. Seek.com, no, we're not interested. All those rivers of gold, which could have gone from um, hard copy print onto the digital space, all of these new, exciting, energetic digital companies starting up, he and they off, they came to Fairfax and said, are you interested? No, no, no. You know, it's not going it's, it, to, this won't last. We don't want to be involved. So there are a few key players involved in this, and I think the whole Channel 9 thing is just inevitable. People have, you know, we know last year there were at least two um, big, strong bids for Fairfax from private um, investment companies, and, you know, it was only a matter of time before Fairfax was taken over. 
So really, everybody, this is not a surprise. Uh, you know, we have to hope that good things come out of this. I'm not quite sure what they will be, but um, you know, certainly in terms of um, certainly in terms of um, journalism, will journal- Australian journalism be okay? And my two answers to that is, good journalism is like milk; it always rises to the top or cream. Because there is an innate and professional need by so many of us, or I I include myself in that, to shine the light in dark corners, to reveal the truth, to expose the bad guys, tell the stories. And, Caro, there will always be a community out there who want to hear those stories or watch them or read them. They want to hear what you have to say about Essen and Footy Club, whatever it is. And the second point I just wanted to make was rich and powerful people will always want to be associated with the media because it makes them more powerful. And, Rupert Murdoch case in point. And, you know, Corey, I'm obviously conflicted because I work for both Channel 9 and The Age, but I can't see why Channel 9 would necessarily be any worse as, as a board running this organisation. I, I know, obviously, Domain is one of the big attractions. And that My is, God, they better get a journalist or someone, well, you know, on that board, but, though, if they're serious but, but about the, it. Because mo- otherwise, Peter Costello, I mean, he has suddenly become one of the most no, powerful people in Corrie, Australia they've, again. There have been journalists who've been involved in management and at board level on newspaper organisations who haven't exactly excelled at their job. As long as you believe in good journalism, that is more important than being a journalist. And I don't see why people like, you know, you, the, you know Adele Ferguson and Nick McKenzie and Richard Baker and Greg Baum and John Sylvester and uh, I could list more than – I could list 20 great journos who, who still work for The Age in Melbourne – Again, conflicted, but my former sports editor, Alex Lavelle, is the editor-in-chief of The Age. I think he's an absolute gun. I'm just not sure we need to be too hasty yet about how they're going to necessarily kill The Age. And I also think that Paul Keating was a little bit over the top. I mean, Channel 9 have got some things they wouldn't be all that proud of. But they've also got a, a great tradition of journalism too. I mean, 60 Minutes in its heyday, and they've made mistakes recently, was a great show. And there are people in the Channel 9 newsroom who take journalism incredibly seriously, including Hugh Nalen, who is the chief of staff or the whatever he's called down here, who runs a Nine newsroom in Melbourne. I'm not yet too concerned. I'm not, no, my, I'm a, it's a waiting game for my, me. My point is not that... Concentration my, is the worry. I well, concentration is the worry. And, but it's, it, my point is not that Nine is going to trash the place. My point is that everybody's jumping up and down going, oh, Nine's going to trash the place. It's the end of the age, the end of the Sydney Morning Herald. That actually, that process started a long, long time ago. Nine has been clever, opportunistic. It, this could be a very good media company. Um, and look, you know, they might, they might, they might for economic reasons, you know, stop actually printing a daily newspaper, but you'd be an idiot, an insane person to get rid of those two great brands, which are the Age and the City Morning Herald. We, uh, we have I to can't remain... imagine. I can't imagine Channel 9 would want to do that. Sydney and Melbourne have to remain two newspaper towns. It's just vital, I think, to the fabric of a big city. But anyway, we'll move on because you've several books. In fact, you're so excited about this new book that you've changed I your B of the BSF. Yes, Caro. So the book I wanted to talk about, we might talk about next week. It's a novel, but I wanted to bring in because um, all the August releases have arrived in the bookshop. It's like Christmas and we are really excited. I bought this one in because I just thought I have to tell potties about it. It's hot off the press. Hetty McKinnon, Family. Now, some of you may remember Hetty McKinnon's most successful cookbook of four or five years ago. It came out called Community, and then she did one called Neighbourhood. So Hetty's story is really interesting, Caro. She started a little salad bar in Surrey Hills in Sydney a few years ago. 
mostly surrounded by advertising agencies and um, PR companies and so on, and nobody there could get anything other than a Chico bar for lunch. And Hetty realised that this was a problem. Out of the back of an old shop, she started making salads, and she would go and deliver salads to people who ordered them all around on her bicycle. So the bicycle became a signature. And then, of course, there were more bicycle riders and many more orders, and Hetty became, you know, big and, you know, famous and huge. Her first cookbook community was based on these salad recipes. <clears throat> Excuse me. Then her husband was transferred through work to New York and they, the family resettled in Bronx. Her second book, which came out a couple of years ago, called Neighbourhood, is a celebration of the Aussie traditions being transplanted into this new neighbourhood of hers in Brooklyn. So there's a very strong American influence. Good American food, Caro, not the, you know, not the tacky sort. But that cookbook has also been huge for us. Now we have her third. It's also very good for grain grocers and supermarkets because there are a lot of ingredients in the recipes. But they're good. And a lot of chopping. There's a lot of chopping. There's a lot of dicing and slicing. And my pantry, I reckon I've got 12 different grains in it now, courtesy of Clementine. Courtesy, courtesy of, of Hetty community McKenna. and yeah. neighbourhood. Yeah, well, look, they they have absolutely taken off these these books, and you know, full Why credit. Why do they never finish? You never finish them, do you? <laughs> then she goes and buys more. Oh, it's a nightmare. Anyway, go on. No, it's true. As I look at all that sort of half parsley, half basil's, and everything in the bottom of the veggie tray in the fridge, and oh, you have to it... throw them out because they're slimy. But look, her new book is called Family Caro, as I said, New Vegetable Classics to Comfort and Nourish. And this time what Hedy's done is not only seek um, inspiration from her own family, including her Chinese heritage background um, and her um, family members from there, but also her own family, what she cooks for, and the families of other people. So for example, Julia Bazutul. Uh, Nikamura, who is the Ostro girl, she and her husband and child are in this book with some recipes. There are some of her new New York buddies and their family stories and their recipes in this. This is just a collection of love. It's a bit like if I said to you, um, here, Caro, for your 60th birthday or 50th birthday or wedding or whatever it is, this is a collection of all of the recipes that all of your friends have put together. It's a bit like that. The photography is beautiful. And as I was going to say before, hats off to Plum Publishing, which is a subsidiary of Pan Macmillan. And they started doing these wonderful recipe books a few years ago. They've nailed the formula. They really do uphold my um, ongoing comment that Australian food styling and food photography is the best in the world. Yeah, I agree with that. Now, how much is it, Corrie? So I don't have a price here, Cara. Oh, oh, shoot. I think it's about <laughs> – it's not on the back. We haven't put a label on it. Um, it's I so hot off the Jane presses. Will, Jane will probably tell me in a minute through can my I, Can I take it home to Clementine and get well, it Well, this is what I was going to do. It? I was going to say well, I would like to give this to um, Clemmy Donoghue, who in that Instagram by that name is one of the great food stylists and cooks. I want her to um, show the world these recipes. A couple I'd really love her to whack up uh, for us, Cara, and bring in if she can. Lime pie with Anzac biscuit crust. Yum. That would be pretty yummy. And the other one that really, really took my fancy is the Zatar Zucchini and Mascarpone Slab Galette. Go to wow. her, Clem. There you are. That's yours. And Clem, I should say, fresh from her MasterChef triumph. <laughs> Caro, the MasterChef grand finale, Clem was the only waiter. Yes, I don't know quite how that happened. She kept saying, I was behind the sofa there. They had me hiding here. I had to go here and she this, was hap- totally this drama on, happened. She, bought, she, she handed food to Heston Blumenthal. 
I know. Your daughter is a rock star. And also what is, is, is Coco? Very, very is upright, Coco, very good posture. As Coco said when we were watching, oh, Clem's got her game face on. <laughs> well, you're not allowed to sort of – because, you know, in some of the previous episodes, Clem actually spoke to Matt and the other guys. Told not to. It was, well, I noticed not, a couple of times she eyed the camera off too. No, like, well, look at me. I'm she wasn't here. told not to speak. She was just in awe of the occasion. But what about – Well, well done, Clem. I thought she showed great poise. What about and, Matt's fuchsia suit? I, mean, I loved it. Anna I loved from the, the op shop suit. was horrified. I loved it. And I loved the floating pillow. It was a great episode. And I told you I wanted Sashi to win. So there you go. That's great. That's not a spoiler alert. Now, Caro, you've been watching the big screen or the little screen this week? Look, the little screen is in a rich vein of form at the moment, and I don't want you to get cross, and I know you probably haven't caught up with it, and I know I've already mentioned it when it first came on, but you don't really need to do anything else except stay home Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night. There's K- Killing Eve on the ABC is one of the most fabulous dramas. Oh, that yeah, I, have... I missed the first episode. Oh, I've taped the second. I've just started it. It is fantastic. It is just it's spies, it's psychological, it's got every great British actor who fascinates. It is just the most wonderful, wonderful show. Then on Saturday night, there's Ross Poldark. And I say again, the character who looks like your daughter, Coco, is just so beguiling, but she is just one of a many great support cast in that stop show. Stop it now. There was a lot of drama. There was a, there was stop a, it. There stop was it. a duel. No, stop weekend. it. Stop it. But but I just want to say, finally, even though Peter Temple is sadly no longer with us, this series of Jack Irish is just every bit as good as the last one. I absolutely love this mini series. The characters in Jack Irish this time are better than ever. The support cast is wonderful. The scenes in the in the pub, the old Fitzroy footballers and the reruns of the old Fitzroy games. Well, you know, Cherry Norris, who's often propping up that bar, yeah. he, he's an old bellbird Man, he oh. he was Joe Turner in Bellbird three hundred years ago. He has been, he has been one of our long-standing television actors. What and a great bloke! The racing corruption backstory, you know, led led by so many great actors, in, including Deborah Mailman, and the story of the overseas students. I urge you to get on Jack Irish and Guy Pearce for the rest of that series, which is surely coming to an end. So sorry, no big screen. Well, this week, well, but well, lots of little screens. Yeah, everybody should do what I've done. I've only seen one Jack Irish, and I'm going to catch up the rest on iView or whatever it's called if I can work out What are you doing on do a Sunday night? Oh, I've been watching MasterChef. Oh, dear. Well, I think that's what I've been doing. Even Clem's got on to Jack Irish. And you were cooking on the weekend, and I urged you to share it with us, and I want to know if it worked. Well, it certainly worked, but you just reminded me I forgot to take the photo, like you said. Oh, God. See, that's a whole modern thing, isn't it? That's the way you can tell somebody under 30. They photograph every food I recipe. I texted they you on it. Sunday morning. Oh, no, I forgot. And said, take a you, photo. I don't know if you really made it now. <laughs> you were, you okay, were going you can to make... ask my guests. I had Sunday lunch at home, and I, what I cooked was I'm, I'm going for the sweet again because I know that you want savoury, but I'm going the sweet. It was such a triumph. This is such an easy recipe. It's from one of the Monday morning cooking club books. This book is The Feast Goes On which um, is available in my bookshop, but all good bookshops have it too. So Monday Morning Cooking Club, The Feast Goes On. And this is called Date and Chocolate Tort. And it is so easy and it is the best tort, the best thing I've ever cooked. 250 grams, which is one and a half cups of whole almonds. So I didn't even, like I had them with their skins on and they weren't activated, Caroline. (laughs) 250 grams of dark chocolate broken into pieces. I just got little chocolate button, dark chocolate buttons. Six egg whites, 115 grams of caster sugar, super fine caster sugar, 250 grams of pitted dates finely chopped, 
250 mils, which is a cup of pure cream, and um, which you whip for serving. And then you put aside some dark chocolate for the topping. So you start. You can start the recipe the day before, which I did, which made Saturday such a pleasure because we had you on the wireless. I was cooking my tort. The fire was going. It was the most perfect Saturday afternoon. Preheat the oven to 180. Um, grease and line a 24-centimetre springform cake tin. Place the almonds and the chocolate in the bowl of the food processor. I just had my whizzer and, I, and put it all in there till it's all chopped up into chunky pieces. Whisk the egg whites until soft peaks form. Then gradually add the caster sugar, whisking until thick and glossy. I love that gloss that you get when you just go, yeah, I'm nailing the pavlova, I'm nailing the whatever. Fold in the almonds, chocolate and dates. Pour into the prepared tin and bake for 45 minutes. Turn off the oven, leave it inside to cool, in the oven to cool, <coughs> excuse me, with the door slightly ajar. When the tort is cool, place it on a platter and refrigerate overnight. That was the key. <coughs> excuse me. That was the key because it became a bit tighter, a bit harder, you know. You're going to put all this in the show notes, I hope, Corrie. Yeah, yeah. To make the topping, melt the chocolate in a heat-proof bowl over the saucepan of simmering water. Well, I actually didn't do that because I just was running out of time with everyone there. I just um, put whipped cream on the top and then I grated chocolate. Uh, so it was so it was white with this lovely chocolate on the top. So it's it. meant to have melted chocolate on the top. Yeah, you, and you do a little zigzag format with your spoon, you know, oh, to make okay. it look pretty. Um, do you don't so, mind me saying you're a bit disorganised. You were going to make this on Thursday or Friday. Yeah, I had a lot. We of, walked I had a lot on going. Saturday morning. Oh, there's a lot of going on in my life over the weekend. Oh, I think you were just <laughs> trying to think. <laughs> I'm trying to think what it was. <laughs> too busy relaxing. I anyway, know, I was too busy relaxing. Day off, Caro. So anyway, we'll put those on the show notes. This served. Uh, how many do we have? We had nine people, and I had leftovers. So it does say here serves ten to twelve people. This is the best chocolate. Where are Jane and my leftovers? Yes, sorry. <laughs> You forgot the gone eaten. You'll just have to. You just have to imagine that I made this thing. But I do have a photograph which I will put on Facebook, um, which uh, is from the cookbook. And I promise you, Caro, mine look better because I actually had the cream top. They just did the drizzled chocolate. So that's it. How beautiful was that? Now, Caro, I just want to say that I'm completely grumpy about Donald Trump. As usual. Um, but this week what he's done is that he had a meeting, he, he had an off-the-record meeting, nobody knew about it, with the um, the chairman of the New York Times who said to him that we are really pissed off and annoyed with, uh, you know, your treatment of American media. We don't think it's in the public interest. It was off the record and, of course, Donald Trump couldn't help himself that night, tweeted and talked about fake news and everything. I think if you're going to agree to have an off-the-record meeting with a newspaper executive and someone as senior as that, you would treat them with respect and regard and you don't tweet about it. And it's just called caused such ill feeling amongst all journalists. Even Fox and Friends are upset about it. There you go. So that's what I'm grumpy about. And before we move on to six quick questions, Jane has brought in, brought in this week Jerusalem artichokes as opposed to globe artichokes. I know these well. They look like little bits of ginger. They used to grow in my old garden. We've got next week coming up Julia's recipe, my mum Julia's recipe for artichoke soup. It is absolutely beautiful, Corrie. When, are we, just go, when are we going to have Jewel back in the... Oh, we might get her in over the next few weeks to hear about her trip. Now it's time for six quick questions. Okay, so I want to ask you about the social impact of a massive footy game like last Saturday's Richmond and Collingwood at the G. Watched it on Saturday as I was cooking my tort. What a fantastic feeling it must have been in the ground. And I thought, what is the what is the... What is the good, the public good that comes out of something like this? Well, the economic good is that it made a lot of money for the Richmond Football Club. The 
um, I suppose, the political impact is that you have a big game like that and a four-page wraparound in one of Melbourne's daily newspapers and um, poor old Liberal Party and their red shirt scandal, the state Liberal Party, you know, they're trying to take on the Daniel Andrews government. I reckon Daniel Andrews should have sent um, the Richmond Football Club a check because it was buried <laughs> inside the four-page lift Okay, out. come on, that's enough. But it's true. There was This was a massive anti-government story and no one was talking about it because Richmond was playing Collingwood. Corrie, I've said this before, when you can get 88,000 people into a ground, the game sadly wasn't on free-to-air TV. A lot of people did do what Gillan McLaughlin said and went to the pub to watch it. Those who couldn't afford Foxtel and didn't understand about watching footy on their phones and who wants to do that were probably a bit annoyed. But to get that many people and not one police arrest after a bit of talk about violence at the footy, not one nasty incident, and everybody arrives in good order, everybody leaves in an orderly fashion. It is the most brilliant functioning ground in the world, isn't it? It is the most brilliant functioning game in the world Mm. and ground in the world. So a good day had by all. I'll give you that, Caro. I'll give you that. And the Tigers had a win. Now, what do you think of the new Vanity Fair editor? Um, not a great deal. Radhika Jones took over from our lovely Gordon Graydon Carter, who we do, you and I have the massive crush on. Oh, um, no, I don't. Oh, I did. I love his restaurant in New York and I was getting too celebrity. Didn't you meet him or bump into him or something? No, but I thought his celebrity interviews or the Vanity Fair ones have become very shallow. So I think the rot had already set in. But okay. go on. All right. She's taken away a few of the regular signposts. So the layout and design has changed. I'm not so mad on the new covers. But what's really annoying me is that her, what used to be the go to must read editor's letter at the beginning. And sometimes Graydon would go on for a couple of thousand words, but it, I enjoyed it. It's now just fluff and bubble. She actually is not a great writer. So not, not happy with it. You know, come back, Graydon. Caro, you did mention Super Saturday and politics and everything. Um, Barry Cassidy had a bit of a lash out on Sunday morning on the ABC at the media. Does the media owe the Australian public an apology for over beating this egg? I think the media was a bit embarrassed by what happened. And this didn't go down all that well with Malcolm Farr or Catherine Murphy or Nikki Sava. I know. Who, who, Nikki Sava. I, I, I'm not apologising. Why should I apologise? I mean, we love Nikki. And, I do love her. And I don't think she necessarily was one who misled the public. But you went into that weekend thinking there was a leadership crisis for Bill Shorten. Yeah, kill Bill. That Anthony Albanese was going to come in and there was going to be for the – and you talked about this last week. I think you're one of the people who owe the Australian oh, public an apology. I don't know that – I'm going to take a leaf out of Nikki's book. I don't know anybody an apology. So so I, I think the media did get it wrong and I think they did create some uh, – a lack of stability in the ALP. But I think the person who came out of this worse was Alexander Downer who called the people who didn't vote for his daughter and who were mean to his daughter new arrivals. In the Adelaide Hills. I didn't realise the Downer family had established the squatocracy in Australia. I didn't realise the Downer family had actually created Adelaide society. Caro, they have a right to this seat. How dare Rebecca Sharkey think that she can rule Mayo? What? What? God, get the Dobermans on them. What's your latest Barnaby Joyce story, Corrie? (laughs) Okay. Uh, I think it's the weekend 24th, 25th of August. It's the um, Canberra Writers Festival. And guess who is one of the um, key speakers, keynote speakers? Barnaby. The theme of the festival is power, passion and politics. And the official statement from the Canberra Writers Festival is the inclusion of former Deputy Prime Minister and current member for New England, Barnaby Joyce, falls within the politics theme with the launch of his autobiography at the National Press Club. Barnaby, stay quiet. Stop it. Extraordinary. Stop it, Barnaby. Thought you'd like that one. Caro, um... Should Fed Square be heritage listed? No. 
Absolutely not. <laughs> I like I like Fed Square. I'm not. I think it is an utter. I, I don't like it. And don't get my sister started. Maybe I started. like it because I used to work there at the gallery. My sister, who you know is a Melbourne person, but who moved to Sydney many years ago, is horrified by what they've done to Fed Square. And I agree with her. This was a fantastic opportunity. It's never really quite worked for me. I love walking down the steps and down onto the Yarra and the Birrowing, Birrowing Ma area, but it is not something that deserves heritage listing. I'd be very happy happy if the Apple Store doesn't open because I don't like the idea of that at all. I don't agree with Sally Cap, our new Lord Mayor, but it's an eyesore, Corrie, and it could have been something absolutely wonderful. And there's no real clear directions about how to get to the gallery. It does not work, and it's a real pity that they didn't think more clearly when they designed Fed Square. And I've Take got, that, Fed Square. What's your crush of the week? Leeling Ching. Oh, yes. Oh, I didn't realise she was retiring. So yep. Sunday night, Potty, she, for those who don't know, and you go, gosh, she must have been living in a black cave all these years. For more than 30 years, she's presented SBS's Weekend News. And she has brought to that job intelligence, diversity, great style. She's got terrific news sense and occasionally an, a, a, a fabulous sense of humour. In fact, she's now doing little um, YouTubes and things. She's hilarious. But we're not quite sure why Li Ling has left. She hasn't been particularly open about that. But she retired on uh, Sunday night. It was her last news bulletin and I was gobsmacked. I was shocked. I could hardly talk. Yeah, it, it, it's a, it'll, it'll leave a vacuum, won't it? And she's worthy of um, Crush of the Week. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that one. <laughs> a, can I mention Jack Revolt, who just signed a new contract? No. And he was one of the... Go on. <laughs> Close the show. We've been here long enough. I do we, have a GLT. We love, we love Li- Linny Swinburne coming in. Yeah, well, 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 that's one GLT, and that's enrol with the field of women. Go to the BCNA website and enrol. It's fifty nine dollars. You get to get a pink poncho, a fabulous goodie bag, you get to walk onto the MCG before the Melbourne Sydney game on August twelve. Yeah. Children are free but you have to register. And Carol, them. if you can't if you can't do any of that, remember if you're ever in Baker's Delight, put some money in the tin because it goes straight to BCNF. BCNA. BCNA sorry. It's been very windy lately, Corrie, and I leave you with this. If you know an area with pine trees the drops pine cones. I know I've mentioned them before, probably about oh, late last year. I beat you to our favourite tree the other day. Yeah, you've got no idea. They're nice pine cones. They start a fire. These are mint show cones. There's not many there at the moment because I've raided it twice. You've got walking around the tan on Alexander Avenue just below the Maya Music Bowl. You mentioned this last week. No, I, did. well, I, I didn't mention the area. I went back again the other day. They are the most beautiful pine cones just below the Maya Music Bowl. But there's other parts of the Botanical Gardens. There's a few. Can you call it by its proper name, the Royal Botanic Gardens? There's well-known girls' schools nearby that might have some nice big show cones. There are fabulous pine cones around at the moment, Corrie. Now, listen, everybody, thank you for listening. As always, we urge you to recommend the show to a friend. Catch up with us on Facebook, Twitter and the Carol and Corrie Instagram. And you can email your thoughts to feedback at don'tshootpod.com. Dot com dot au. If you can take the time to give us a five star review on app, what about a four star review? We'd be happy with no, that. We, don't, we, we want five on five, Apple please. on Apple Podcasts or wherever it helps you listen. People find us. We'd really appreciate it. Just as Claire Waitley's friend Caroline D did last week, who's loving our BSF tips. And Corrie, you've got a good book for next week. I do. And Stay I've tuned, got a, pods. And I've got a good film. And I've got my mum's artichoke soup recipe. Thank you, Jane and Corrie. Don't shoot the messenger, Carol.